that it is uh, primarily for, for one reason. How, do you remember the one reason? What is the big, the big reason behind why we believe the Bible? It is the resurrection, yes. The historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that demonstrates that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. He is who he claimed to be. And it validates everything about God's Word. And if, if the New Testament can be demonstrated to be historically reliable, then we can believe what it says, we can trust the Old Testament. And we've also talked about this idea that we can believe, uh, we can trust the Bible that we have in our hands today. Um, this this Bible. Now we you know there are multiple uh, versions, multiple translations, and I uh, I do believe that there are some that are better than others. Um, however, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, what it all comes down to is uh, if you wonder which version is best, the version that is best is simply the one that you will read. <laughs> Um, you know, people ask all kinds of questions and they concern themselves with, uh, with all kinds of issues when, when really they haven't dealt with the bigger issue of simply getting to know God and His Word in the first place. I want to continue talking about big questions that need big answers and uh, uh, want to start looking this morning at some Bible difficulties, some Bible difficulties. Uh, now understand uh, that we are approaching this topic from a perspective of faith and belief, not a perspective of, of doubt or skepticism. You understand, I hope, that there is a big difference in how you approach something. You see, our presuppositions, that is the, the underlying opinions that we already have in place, uh, they will have a great deal uh, to, to do with the, uh, the outcome or the conclusion that we come to. If you've already made up your mind that you cannot trust something or someone, then when you try to examine the evidence for or against, um, you're going to have a hard time changing your conclusion if you've already made up your mind. You can't trust. Does that make sense? Yeah, so your presupposition. So when we think about Bible difficulties, we as, uh, as believers, we as the church, we are approaching it from a position uh, not of doubt and skepticism, but from a position of faith. We've already determined that the evidence uh, for the, the belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence is good. That we really can believe Jesus really came. He really died and rose again. We can believe that. Because we believe that, we can believe that the Bible is true. So we are coming at it from a position of faith. The first of the Bible difficulties that I want to talk about and that we'll look at specifically this morning has to do with the character of God. 
the character of God. Now, we've already talked about something similar to this when we talked about the problem of evil a few weeks ago. We talked about this idea that people have that, uh, that if God is good and God is loving and God is all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? Well, this kind of goes along with that, but it uh, comes at it from a little bit different perspective. Now, if you've been reading the Bible or studying the Bible for long, then you already know what I'm about to tell you. That is, that it is possible to perceive the Bible as presenting two views of the character of God that, are, that seem to be at odds with each other. I've had people tell me, uh, you know, something like this, boy, I'm sure thankful for Jesus. You know, that Jesus came along and seemed to change God's mind about humanity. That, that idea that the God of the Old Testament was, was a mean God, a capricious God, uh, and uh, that Jesus came along and, and changed God's mind. And I will admit, depending on what passages, what verses of the Bible you look at, it is possible to read the Bible and perceive that there are these two uh, seemingly opposing views of the character of God. We can look at stories from the Old Testament on the one hand and compare them to our perception of Jesus in the New Testament on the other hand, and and we see that Jesus uh, seems to portray this God of love and mercy and kindness, and that the God that we read about in the Old Testament is more a God of anger and justice and that he's out to get people and... uh, that leaves us with the question of how do, we, how do we balance the scales? How are we to come to an accurate understanding of the nature and character of God, who God is, when it seems that His Word, His book, the Bible, seems to portray opposing views of Him? In 1794, Thomas Paine wrote in uh, his book, The Age of Reason. He said, whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, and the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the work of a demon than the word of God. Thomas Paine, one of our great American patriots, or considered by some. Some examples of what he's talking about. Uh, and, and if you've never wrestled with this, um, I don't know, maybe you've never had anything bad happen in your own life, or maybe you just don't know your Bible well enough. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 7. God commands the Israelites to completely destroy the seven Canaanite nations that they are coming in to, to displace. That includes, that, that's a total annihilation. That's what God commanded them to do. How do we, how do we make that jive 
with a God who is also loving and merciful and kind. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll read about this here in just a few moments, but 1 Samuel chapter 15, the first three verses, God commands Saul to take his armies and go and to completely destroy the Amalekites, including the women and children and all the animals. How do we... How do we make that? How do we make sense of that? Second Kings chapter two. This is an interesting story. I'm not going to dig into this one, but Second Kings chapter two is an interesting story about Elisha the prophet and some, depending on how how you read the Bible, some young boys, young children, come out and make fun of him for being bald. And Elisha pronounces a curse upon them, and some bears come out and maul and eat 42 of them. And as we read and understand our Bible, we think, my, isn't that rather harsh? Not to, not to create a pun, but isn't that a little bit overkill? You know, just because they... Now, there is, I'm not going to dig into that one, but there is an explanation. Um, but I'm going to look specifically this morning at the passage from 1 Samuel chapter 15, where God gives Saul the command to destroy the, Amal- the Amalekites, or Amalekites, however you want to say it, um, <clears throat> including all of their animals and all of their women and children, and not to spare anyone. This was the command of God. And again, I want to give you a, a, just a little reminder as we work through these, uh, these different questions and the different issues in this series. First of all, to tell you that I'm not trying to give you definitive answers. And I'm not going to say, <clears throat> um, do you understand that there are some answers that can be true but that don't make you happy? And I believe that that will be the case, possibly this morning. There will be answers that I hope you will be able to see. While the answer may be true, it might not necessarily make you happy. Um, So I'm not trying to give you definitive (coughs) dogmatic answers. Excuse me. But simply to give you some information, uh, some, some tools to help you see that there is not necessarily a contradiction in God's character. Not, not necessarily. There is not a contradiction in God's character. Let me just be real clear about that. And one other reminder to, to the unbeliever, that is to the person unwilling to believe, no answer is good enough. No solution to any question, no explanation to any of these issues will ever be good enough if you are unwilling to believe. <clears throat> So first things first, let's let's look at this question. 
before we look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, if, if there is a God, if there is a God, um, and, and I'm assuming that in this setting we all believe that there is, if there is a God, then by, by definition he is supreme, he is creator, he is the first cause, he is the cause of everything in this world, in this universe. And so if there is a God, what would we expect of him? Well, I, one thing I think is that we would expect, if there is a God, that he would be sovereign over all of life, right? If he is God, wouldn't he be sovereign over all of life? What does that mean, that he is sovereign over all of life? Well, I believe essentially what that means is if you're the creator of life, then you also have the right to take life. Does that make sense? Let me try to make it a little more clear. <clears throat> it would be against the law for me to come into your yard and start cutting down your trees or removing shrubs or, or whatever, whatever you have in your yard, moving things around and say, oh, I don't like that bush there. I'm going to dig that up and move that bush over here. That would be against the law. Why? Because that is not my property. That's your property. That's where you are sovereign. And that for me to do in your yard would be vandalism. Right? But can I do it in my own yard where I'm the property owner? If I, I mean, if I planted the tree or the shrub or the bush, I could cut it down if I want to. Right? Because I'm in charge there. So if there is a God, we would expect that he would be sovereign over all of life. If you can create life, then you also have the right to take away life. Also, if there is a God, then who would have a superior understanding of justice and morality? I believe this is a big deal. If there really is a God, who would have a superior understanding of justice and morality? A lot of times people that struggle with these issues end up emotionally involved and emotionally invested in the questions and it as it it ends up being as if they are elevating their own sense of morality and justice to a position that is superior over God's understanding of morality and justice Friends, let me tell you this morning that there is for certain a God in heaven, and we do not need to worry or concern ourselves about whether or not he is going to do what's right. He, as supreme, certainly has a sense of morality and justice that is superior to our own. So we don't have to worry uh, that God is somehow or another going to be unfair uh, to, to one class of people or one group of people or, or that God is in, in what he uh, commands or even in, in what he allows, that God is going to be unjust or unfair. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, God alone 
is a righteous judge. God alone is the one that we can trust to do what is right in this world. So this morning in dealing with this one example, I want to invite your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, it, it, this may leave you know, some of the issues uh, not clearly answered that, that relate to this question about the character of God, but I believe in dealing with this one uh, passage, this one story, that it'll give us at least enough information, enough tools that will overlap with all of the others. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1 through 3, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Again, we read these accounts and have a tendency. And I, I will tell you, I myself, my first response to this is an emotional response that says, Man, doesn't that seem a little harsh? Doesn't that seem a little hard? Well, let's look into this account. Let's look into this story. First of all, we see uh, that it says God remembered or God noted. I have taken note of Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel. So to understand that, we have to look back in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, beginning with verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And you remember how the story goes. As long as Moses kept the staff uh, uh, extended and raised, then uh, Joshua and the, the men that were fighting, they were able to prevail. Um, moving on, I'm going to just skip down to where after they've won the victory, uh, verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is a promise, a divine promise, that there will be war with Amalek perpetually until they are all gone, until they are destroyed. God says, I will blot them out, and he promises that this war will be ongoing. Now again, yes, maybe Amalek attacked Israel, God's people. But still, to promise that there will be perpetual war and, and uh, that I'm gonna, uh, God says he, I'm gonna, we're going to keep at this until they're all gone, until they're blotted out. Still, doesn't that seem extreme? Couldn't there be some circumstance under which this, you know, can't we all just get along? 
Couldn't there be some circumstance under which they could have a resolution to their conflict? Well, we read in Deuteronomy a little bit more about the, the tactics that Amalek used when they came against the Israelites. <clears throat> if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, you read there in verse 17 and 18 again, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So what were the tactics of the Amalekites when they came against the Israelites? They were sniping at the rear and attacking the feeble, those who were lagging behind. So who would that be in this large group of people? Well, that would be most likely the elderly and the mothers and the children. So, God says, they came against you, they came against you from behind the faint and the weary, and they took out those that were lagging behind. Now, question. When God commanded Samuel, or Saul through Samuel to go against the Amalekites, when God told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out, uh, and there's going to be perpetual war with them until they're all gone, um, question, was this arbitrary ethnic cleansing? Was this arbitrary ethnic cleansing? As God says, I like Israel, I don't like Amalekites. Um, some of you, you are going to have to have some dialogue um, because you're disagreeing with me, and that's okay, that's all right. This was not arbitrary ethnic cleansing. This is specific judgment for specific actions and attitudes against God's people. Okay? Second, was God being capricious? What is it to be capricious? You know what it means to be capricious? It means to, be, to have a mood that is changing. You know, you read about the Greek... Uh, the, the gods of Greek mythology, they were capricious gods. They were, you know, they could be in a good mood one minute and in a bad mood the next, and, and you know, you had to make some kind of sacrifice to appease them. Um, God was not being capricious. Understand, these were not innocent people. The Amalekites were not innocent people. And, and so many people, the first thing people want to say was, well, what about the children? Yes, but what about the children? And I, I get it. I understand. I'm a father with children. And we say, well, what about the children? And again, let me, let me remind you of what I said earlier. You may not like the answers that you hear, but I believe there is an element of truth. 
You see, there was no hope for the children in these societies. There was no hope that these children would not grow up to be just like their mothers and fathers before them. They were born under a sentence of death. You see, the society as a system, I'm not talking about individual people, but the society as a system was so corrupt that it was beyond recovery, and the only solution was removal, like a a limb that's infected with gangrene. The only way to save the life of that patient is to amputate the limb. So no, this is not arbitrary ethnic cleansing. This is not God choosing one group of people against another and saying, I'm going to just wipe them out because I like them better than I like you. That's not it. This was God's judgment, specific judgment for specific actions and attitudes. This is not God being capricious. These were not innocent people. Finally, another big question, was escape possible? Now, we don't read about this for the Amalekites. But if we read other accounts about God promising judgment, it's clear to me that escape would have been possible for any individual who desired it. You go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you read about God's promise uh, to Abraham and God mentions there some of the specific names of the nations of the Canaanites. Now the Amalekites were not mentioned yet. Why were the Amalekites not mentioned there? Because the Amalekites were not yet heard of at that moment. The Amalekites were descendants of Lot. They, they came later. However, they still fit in with that same group of people, uh, part of the, uh, the uh, uh, citizens of the Canaanite nations that were so corrupt that they were beyond recovery. And what do we see when we find people that belong to those nations who said, you know what, I don't, I don't like the direction that things are going here, and we have specific examples of this. When God uh, told uh, the Israelites through Joshua to go and take Jericho, do you remember the spies that went into Jericho and Rahab brought them in and gave them protection and said, we all know what's happening. We've all heard about all of this, and, and uh, I don't really want any part of it, and this is my version. And there was made a way of escape for her because she chose to align herself not with the corrupt uh, uh, society that she was a part of, but she chose to align herself with God's people, and she escaped the judgment. And this happens repeatedly all throughout the Old Testament. Absolutely. And, and another thing that, uh, that we read in Genesis chapter 15 is that there's a period of about 400 years God promised, us, uh, God promised Abraham in Genesis 15 that the land of the Canaanites would belong to Abraham's descendants. And all of those people that were part of that land were going to be gone. But that didn't happen for another 400 years. Why? 
because God said in Genesis chapter 15 that the, essentially, I believe the King James Version says it this way, their cup of iniquity was not yet full. In other words, they had not yet sinned to the point that they were beyond recovery. Genesis chapter 15, I'm not going to go to it, but just if you write it down. There is a point at which a society can go. I believe there's a point that individuals can reach. That their, their cup of iniquity is full. In other words, they have sinned and, and resisted and turned their backs on God to the point that they are beyond recovery. And God says to them, essentially, I've done everything I can. I can't do any more. And at that point, there's no hope for that society. There's no hope for that individual. Though the tone of the Old Testament sometimes sounds as if Israel was in and everybody else was out, that's not the case. There are multiple instances of people who came into God's family from the outside There were people with the sentence of death hanging over them like Rahab that we mentioned a moment ago. And because they chose to place their faith in Yahweh and to side with Yahweh's people, they were spared and their families were spared. You see, friends, God's purpose both then and now was never to destroy people who would have repented if only they had a chance. And I think that's often the way we read it or the way people read it when they bring this up as an objection to why they don't believe the Bible or why they don't place their faith in God. It's, just, it's as if God's just arbitrarily deciding for some people and against others. And I don't believe that's the case. That's not the kind of God I know. And that's not the kind of God that is revealed in this book. God's purpose is never to destroy people who would have repented if they'd only had a chance. But it was rather, in this case of the Amalekites, it's rather to destroy the corrupt nations because the national structure and systems of those nations had become inherently evil till they were beyond recovery. So I believe while looking at this one specific example, may not fully address all of the issues and all of the concerns, I believe there's enough here with this one specific example that we can use it as a, as a template or a lens through which to look at all of these other examples and remembering these questions. Is God, you know, is God being... Capricious? Is he just picking on people because he somehow decided he doesn't like them? Or is he bringing upon them a just judgment? Is escape possible for people who wish to escape the judgment of God? And both of the answers to those questions, I believe, in every situation are obvious. You can go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and think, my, how could God destroy those cities? And you remember Abraham interceded for those cities. He prayed for those cities. And he, he basically confronted God with God's own character and said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? How can you destroy the innocent with the guilty? And God essentially said to Abraham, no, you're right. I won't destroy the innocent with the guilty. 
and God made a way of escape for those that were willing to take it. You see, as we read through the Bible from beginning to end, the the essence of God's character that is revealed to us there is what I would call holy love. Holy love. You see, for God to allow sin and evil to persist without judgment or justice, then God would neither be holy or loving. Neither one would be good. You see, God reveals himself in the essence of his character in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, where it says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's the Old Testament. What do we read in the New Testament about Jesus? John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So you see, friends, the God that we read about in the Old Testament is just the same loving and merciful God that is revealed to us through Jesus in the New Testament. And the Jesus that we read about in the New Testament is just the same who is angry at sin, who wants to bring justice and judgment against all unrighteousness. He is just the same as that which we read about God in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3, I, I concluded the message a week or two ago with this, uh, with this passage of Scripture, but I'm going to use it again because it's so appropriate. Romans chapter 3 the end of the chapter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation and atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ he is both just and the justifier So as we close this morning, let me ask you to use your imagination with me for just a few moments and put yourselves in the shoes of the condemned criminal. You are in the courtroom before 
the judge and the jury. You stand there and you know that you are guilty and you know that most of the people there know also that you are guilty. You know that the judge is a good judge. He is a good man. And as a good man, a good judge, you know that he will uphold law and order. He will not somehow excuse your guilt or excuse your sin. But at the same time, you also know that the judge is a merciful judge. And somehow or another, though you don't understand how, you don't realize how it might work itself out, you have hope for yourself that even though the judge is a good man who will uphold law and order, you also know he is a merciful man. You can't afford your own defense attorney, and as is often the case in our judicial system, you end up with a court appointed defense attorney. And when that man who has been appointed to serve as your defense attorney stands to defend you, he approaches the judge's bench and calls him father. And then you realize, yes, there's where I have hope. Friends, we have a God who is perfectly just and holy. He will do what's right. He will not excuse the guilty. But friends, he will provide a way for our guilt, our sin to be paid for through the precious blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. We all, just like the uh, Amalekites have a sentence of death hanging over us unless we choose to take advantage of the way of escape that has been provided for us through our Heavenly Father's Son, Jesus Christ. He paid the price. Praise His name. Let's stand together.